Welcome back to the program. When we talk about success, be it on Wall Street or Silicon Valley or even the boom in the natural gas business, we always talk about it as the new gold rush, in part because the gold rush represented the mobility, energy, and adventure of America's pursuit of riches. But these riches that began in California in 1849 were anything but easy. While many made fortunes, many of those fortunes came to those who took care of the hundreds of thousands who would come looking to change their lives. That's the world that my guest Edward Dolnick writes about in his new book, The Rush. Edward Dolnick is the author of the previous books, The Clockwork Universe, The Forger's Spell, and Down the Great Unknown. It is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about The Rush, America's fevered quest for fortune, 1848 to 1853. Edward Dolnick, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. Talk about the gold rush in terms of the impact, the broad impact that it had on the country. You know, we think about it a lot in terms of the effects on California, and certainly we'll talk about some of those. But this was a story that was bigger for the country than just California. Yeah, this was absolutely a national story, really an international story. And what's so strange about it, uh, and the single most important fact about the gold rush was that this was something absolutely brand new. Um, everyone always knew in the 1840s that bad things could happen overnight. The world could fall apart. Uh, the country could uh, go into a depression. Uh, the epidemic could sweep through your city. Things could fall apart. But nobody had any experience that something good could happen just as quickly. And then came word that gold had been discovered. And this was new, and people really lost, uh, lost their bearings. Talk a little bit about how the word spread. This was very different than the way we may think about it today, because news spread obviously very differently at that time. Well, it spread slowly, uh, which, is, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, when the first reports of, of gold came, uh, it, was, it was too astonishing for people to believe. Uh, they heard the rumors. Um, they dismissed them as rumors. This was fairy tale kind of stuff. Uh, newspapers reported the stories early on, but nobody believed newspapers in this era because the newspapers were, were full of uh, hoaxes and hot air, uh, mainly for the fun of it. And this was the age of P.T. Barnum when people would make any kind of crazy claim that there was a person who was, uh, who was uh, one foot tall or 200 years old. People were used to all kinds of astonishing claims that, uh, that they didn't have to believe. Finally, months and months after the first reports of gold, what turned the tide was the president of the United States himself in his State of the Union speech saying, those rumors of gold you've heard, they're true. They're all true. And then the dam burst, and people were, were astonished, and they gave way to, to hope. They dared to hope. Talk a little bit about why President Polk at the time felt the need to address this issue in the context of his State of the Union address. Well, it was a, a peculiar thing. This was 1848, where just after the Mexican-American War, which was a terribly unpopular war, kind of the, the Iraq War of its, of its day. And Polk was a uh, controversial figure, uh, kind of like W. Bush. And now he's giving his State of the Union address. And one of the things he's, he's out to convey is that this, this controversial war was actually a terrific idea and that this million square miles of new land that Mexico had ceded to the United States as a result of the Mexican-American War 
Polk wanted to convey was not empty and worthless land, but was terrific, valuable land. And he had done a smart thing in setting out on this war that ended up us up with the land. And he went on, Polk, in his speech, to enumerate all the virtues of this new land. And he went through this state and that state. And in California, he said, uh, it, there were great harbors, there was lush farmland. And above all, Polk says, there really is gold. If you dare to get out there, you can get it for yourself. You can change your life. Did Polk understand the migration that this would set off and the impact that it would have on other parts of the country, particularly the middle of the country, as so many people abandoned their lives as they knew them to move westward? It doesn't seem that he quite caught on to, to what he had started. What he was trying to do was to say, uh, there is good news. Something controversial that I had done was actually a smart move. Uh, it doesn't seem that he pictured the stampede that would occur when it dawned on people that, that their life didn't have to be like their father's or their mother's life had always been, which was the, the presumption that it was too deep for people even to question. Your life would be what life had always been like. And now here came word from the highest authority in the land that that wasn't so. You had a chance. You could get out. You could jump out of the rut you were in. And people were bowled over by that possibility. Talk a little more about that in terms of this sense of social mobility that was in a way part of the American DNA, but this in many ways enhanced it. It made it a deeper part of the American experience. Well, this, this notion of change, as you say, had been built in from the start. And the, the early 1800s was an era of enormous change. This is, this is when the railroads are being built. Uh, the amount of, of railroad track in the land goes up from uh, 10 or 20 miles to thousands of miles. Uh, there, there are more jobs um, being created. Cities are growing bigger. But the consequence of this change is, on the one hand, to make people... Uh, more ambitious for, for hope, more, more, more uh, eager to change their own lives, but on the other hand, more fearful that the change was happening to somebody else and that they themselves were being left out. And now the gold rush uh, or the announcement of gold gave the possibility to everybody of speeding up that process. Things were not only going to change, but they were going to, to change overnight. Once you could get to California, you would go out there as a, uh, as a middling person and overnight become a rich one. Um, so, so it wasn't simply change, but it was, it was transformation, overnight change. Uh, and the possibility of getting in on the game, uh, which once had seemed the, the privilege of only, only a fortunate few, was now thrown open to everyone. That was the, the message, the hope of California's gold. And talk about getting to California, something that, that wasn't that easy, and that was really the first decision people had to make, how they were going to get there. To get there, which, which everyone uh, presumed, uh, this is the part of the story that you pass over, the big decision is to go, and then you'll be there and you'll be rich. Uh, the middle ground, how you're going to get there, uh, no one bothered to think about too much, but it was an enormous undertaking. Uh, as everybody knows who's driven cross-country, uh, this is a big country. And they weren't driving on interstates at uh, 70 or 80 miles an hour. They were proceeding, the ones who went overland, uh, on foot, most of them, to spare the animals. Uh, so it was about 2,500 miles because you could take steamships or trains to, to Missouri, which was the usual starting place. 
But from there on, you would be trudging along at slower than walking pace. Uh, two or three miles an hour was, was a standard pace. And as you go, the journey gets harder. Uh, you start off on prairies, uh, which isn't too bad, although it's monotonous. Uh, but then you come to mountains, then you come to desert, then you come to more mountains. Uh, harder and harder as you get weaker and more tired and run out of food. And if you've chosen instead to go by sea, uh, this is before the Panama Canal. So you're going to go, if you leave from the East Coast, all the way around the tip of South America and then all the way up uh, the western coast of South America. You're going to be covering a distance uh, about five times the overland distance. It's going to take months and months while you're stuck on shipboard and you're in a race after all and everyone is going to be getting there ahead of you. So the journey is is a terribly difficult and slow uh, process. The rush is a race that's run at a crawl. Once they got there, what kind of infrastructure existed or didn't exist to accommodate these huge numbers of people that showed up? One of the thrills for the gold seekers was that they arrived in a land that had essentially no infrastructure, uh, no laws, no forms to fill out, uh, no, no deeds of territory. What had happened was that because Mexico had lost the Mexican-American War and it handed over all this land to, to the United States, part of what they had handed over was California. Nine days after this turnover, after Mexico says it's not our land anymore, it's yours, it was nine days after that handover that gold was discovered in California. And Americans in the United States took this as proof that God uh, had watched over the Americans, that we were his special pets, because the Mexicans, after all, had had this land for, for a long, long time and had never found gold. And immediately when we took over, there the gold was discovered. Uh, this, this was surely proof that God was watching out for us. Uh, so there's, the Mexicans are gone. There's no Mexican law. This is so far from the United States proper that there is no American law at this point, this is a free-for-all, uh, first-come, first-served, uh, made the strong survive. Uh, some people liked it, and a lot of people were trampled. Talking about the strong surviving, about 20% of those that arrived were dead after six months. The, the conditions in California were astonishingly brutal. There was no, uh, not only no infrastructure in the sense of uh, no bridges over the roads, uh, over the rivers, uh, no roads, but, but uh, no medical care. And in 1849, medical care was incredibly primitive uh, in any event. Uh, the gold rush was entirely male. So what you have is young uh, men who don't know the first thing about taking care of themselves, about cooking for themselves, about, uh, about building shelter, who, who are digging in, in the rain and the sun and the cold, uh, depending on the season, sleeping outdoors, shivering, sick with, uh, with dysentery, with cholera, with scurvy, uh, shooting one another out of boredom and frustration. Uh, terribly dangerous place to be. Were there any families that made the migration? You talk about some specifically in the rush. Um, there, there were some, but it was rare. Um, the typical person who went uh, was, was a young single male. What, what happened was, if you were rich when word of gold came, uh, you didn't have to, to bother with it. That was somebody else's problem. You were doing perfectly well as it was. And if you were poor, you couldn't afford to get in on the game. 
because it was expensive to go to California. You had to quit your job. You had to buy six months or so of supplies. Uh, you, had to, you had to set off across the country. So most of the people who went to California uh, looking for gold were, were from the restless middle. They were the equivalent of many of them of cubicle workers today. Uh, but that meant that they had no outdoor savvy, no, no skill about uh, all the essential crafts they would need to cook for themselves, to, to, uh, to tend for their animals, to, to uh, pitch tents at night. Uh, so, so they're eager, uh, but but almost uh, almost helpless in, in far far over their heads. Um, and as I say, uh, most of them young men. So this is essentially a uh, a, a traveling uh, frat house with the worst kind of uh, young adolescent uh, excess that you can imagine. And of course, there were a lot of clever business people that realized there was huge opportunity and money to be made from all these people showing up there. Very, very early on, it dawns on some of the most savvy uh, that the money was to be made uh, in what they called mining the miners, uh, rather than uh, than dig a ditch yourself, which was essentially how you search for gold. Uh, the money was in selling the shovels and picks uh, and, and uh, pants and hats uh, that that the miners needed, and, and food and supplies. California had essentially none of the goods. Uh, that these hordes of newcomers needed, and the money came uh, from those who, those entrepreneurs who saw that need and filled it, and, and they uh, did very, very well for themselves. What was life in the mining camps like? Uh, it, it was gruesome, actually. It was it was terribly difficult physical work, essentially uh, a life of, of ditch digging, although these were uh, digging in wet ditches uh, over and over again uh, through the day, uh, digging through the dirt, hoping uh, for a glint of gold. But what made it so hard, uh, aside from the physical labor, was the psychology that it was completely random. So you might be digging like mad and finding nothing, and right next to you, someone doing the identical work by good fortune uh, smacked his pick into a rock, and suddenly he was rich as a king. And you had to look at him, who had done nothing different than you, but his life was going to be transformed, and you were digging a hole in the dirt. And then at night, there was nothing to do but retreat to a bar and, uh, and uh, drink yourself uh, uh, as some consolation uh, for, for, for the day's labor, and you would uh, be certain in this giant crowd of men around the bar that somebody there was celebrating and whooping at his good fortune, and you had spent the day digging uh, and got nothing, and you had spent the day like that for months on end. Uh, so, so the psychology of watching someone else gleeful while you yourself was miserable added to the, the brute physical work uh, made this just a terribly difficult time for the miners uh, who, who, who are working so hard. How has it been that over the years there's been an element of this experience, as tough as, as you describe it, that in some ways it's been glamorized over the years? Well, it, it, is, it is glamorous, uh, or it has become glamorous, even though the reality was, was this, uh, uh, this vision of, of sick and exhausted and envious men for the most part. But, but the glamorous side, and, and they felt it themselves, uh, 
was that they were free. There was no one telling them what to do. There was no one tutting at them. Uh, the prizes were real. This was not a bubble like the housing bubble where it would all collapse. Some people really were going to do well. Uh, and, and the men who tried it, a fair number of them slinked back home, but for a lot of them, they themselves contributed to the glamorizing because they became like old soldiers later on, uh, reminiscing about their days as brave young fighters, uh, miserable at the time, slithering along in, in, in the mud and muck, uh, but later, in hindsight, transformed into tales of youthful vigor and nerve. Uh, soldiers do that, and, and these miners tended to as well. Even though it became clear as the gold rush continued how big the mother load was, that it stretched some 120 miles, the number of people that really got rich from it is relatively small compared to how many came seeking fortune. Um, it, it, was, it was rare um, to make a fortune. Uh, early on, the gold rushers looked at the stampede around them, at these tens of thousands of people just like them, and they were thrilled. Uh, this is kind of the adrenaline rush you get of pouring into a football stadium uh, or, or a concert. Here's everyone all out for the same goal, all, all buzzing about the same prize. Uh, but, but at some point it dawned on them early on that even a big pie cut into 100,000 pieces uh, was, was not going to be enough to go around. And, and then more than that, they had each vowed that as soon as they made their strike, as soon as they made their fortune, they would grab that gold and rush back home and live off it for the rest of their days. But in practice, that seldom happened, uh, almost to their, to their own astonishment. Even those miners who did make a lucky strike uh, tended to, to, to blow it in gambling, to treat all their friends, to, to lose it as if it had been nothing at all to gain it in the first place, even though it had been such fierce labor. So very, very few of these miners walked home uh, with the fortune they had come so far to win. And even those that had made a fortune, a lot of them decided to stay. It had a profound effect in changing the face of California. California was different from the beginning. It was new, it was exciting, it was cosmopolitan, it was, it was far from home, for one thing, and that in itself was a great lure. The, the state early on had some of that, uh, that mood of, of uh, freshman year at a college where people are away from home, uh, and the way that they're known, and the, the, the teasing that goes on, and the limitation that goes on, because everybody knows uh, who you were and who your family was, none of that applied in California. This was a land where you could make a fresh start. Uh, the, the money was a bonus, but even if you didn't have that, to be far away, to be starting again, uh, was a great thing, and that made California enticing from the start. And talk a little bit about those that did make a fortune and that kept it. What did they do with it? How did it change things for them and for their communities? Well, the fortunes early on uh, were made and lost, which was one peculiar thing. Um, it, it, it wasn't simply that, that the same names were at the top of the pyramid always. Uh, and this was different than it had been in the East as well. In California, even the, the rich men's biographies all had these episodes of failure built in, failure and success, and then another failure and another success. And failure in California became a, a mark of, of virtue almost. This showed how long you had been in the game, how hard you had tried, how bold you were. Whereas in the East, 
failure was a mark of of, of shame, of of uh, of foolishness, of indulgence. And, and once you had gone broke, you were a person to be shunned forever after. But not in California. Um, so so it was okay to fail. And after a bunch of failures, various people did did rise to the top. And some of them now had so much money that they stayed there. Now we get we get the railroad tycoons. We get the uh, names of merchants that that we still we still know today. Uh, Levi Strauss probably uh, most famously uh, among them. Uh, all these fortunes derived in one way or another from the miners, and, and uh, so huge that they that they endured for generations. It also established in a broader sense, and, and you alluded to this a minute ago in terms of the way the rest of the country, particularly the East Coast, looked upon it. It established this kind of Western ethos that was particularly unique. The, the West was different. Um, the East uh, in this era was still trying uh, trying to win the respect of Europe to, to, and and. In many ways, was a kind of watered down Europe. The the, the literature was European, uh, English at least. The the, the, uh, the standards of behavior, the, the things you would aspire to do. Uh, California was tired of that. Uh, in, in California, you didn't want to be the the uh, same old story uh, done again uh, in an American accent. You wanted a brand new story. Um, and it was, and that that lured a lot of newcomers, and it repelled some of some of the Easterners who felt that they had uh, wandered into a god, godless territory, and they had uh, best get home quickly again. What brought an end to it? What what really brought the end of the gold rush? The the change came quickly. Uh, in the early days, it was a matter of of luck and a pick and shovel. Uh, technology is what changed it. W- when people found uh, that rather than dig your way through the dirt, what you could do was, was make essentially a, a water cannon, a, a machine, uh, a super, a super uh, strong industrial hose to blast away whole mountainsides at a time and to wash those mountainsides of dirt uh, in, in a huge scale and, and to uh, scan those those tons of dirt for ounces of gold. Uh, this was something, uh, this was a game now that the individual miner couldn't play anymore. It took a corporation, a, a lot of men banded together uh, to, to take advantage of this industrial might. That came along after about only a five-year golden age when the, when the loan prospector had a chance now they now the prospectors were blasted aside almost like these mountainsides were by these water cannons uh so by 1853 or so it's a new game it's not lone miners it's corporations and the day of the uh single man hoping for a fortune is almost over and all those single men all those hundreds of thousands that came to california what would happen to them well most of them would go home. Uh, a lot of them would, would uh, slink home. They had gone off uh, to the accompaniment of brass bands. Everybody in town turned off. Uh, turned out this was the great fellow who was going to come back riding in glory with a wagon of gold behind him. And now it hadn't happened. Uh, they'd, uh, they'd returned, but they were uh, tired and weak. Um, a fair number stayed in California. Um, some of them lured by the prospects of this freedom, some of them not willing uh, to go home in this, in this kind of ignominious way. Um, so, so the end of the story 
for those who go back east has this kind of fizzled quality, and for those who stay west has this new, uh, we've been in the land where we've seen new things, uh, hope for the future uh, quality to it. Edward Dolnick, his book is The Rush, America's Fevered Quest for Fortune, 1848 to 1853. Edward, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 